This week, as I called in the title, Darlene didn't have enough courage to ask me what it meant. She went to James. And so we're going to try something different this morning, as you can already tell. If you are over 55 years of age and have an iPhone, iPad computer that has Angry Bird on it, would you just raise your hand? Okay, leave them up, leave them up. Okay, leave them up, because I got something for you. That's over 55, right? If you're over 60, oh, I, I got somebody right here, real quick, okay. Over 65? 70? Uh-oh, we're getting down to two here. 75? Ah, Clyde lost out. Okay, here we go. I have a T-shirt, Okay. <laughs> Being angry is for the birds. Be happy. Psalms 118, verse 24. God bless you. Amen. So we do have some computer-savvy seniors. Okay, great. As you can figure out, Angry Birds is a computer game in which is some strategy because the green pigs have stolen the birds' eggs. And so the idea is these birds, five of them, are attacking and finding ways to destroy the hiding place of the green pigs. All that to say what? Well, we live in a world that is filled with anger, do we not? We live in a world in which every time we pick up the paper, turn on the news, somebody in anger has struck out against someone. Husbands against wives, children against parents, mothers taking their children and killing their children. It is a sad, sad commentary about us in America. But anger is there. It's all around us. And if you're like many of us, we struggle with anger in our lives. We struggle to the point of trying to be able to manage it, to control it, to have it constructive uh, in our being. And it has been a struggle most of our lives. And I'm one of them. I've read books upon books upon, you know, anything I could grab a hold of to teach me, to guide me, to direct me. Because as I read God's Word, I find it speaks a lot about anger. And in 1 Samuel, the uh, 25th chapter verse, the whole chapter really, you need to read the whole chapter this week because there's a lot in it. Because it talks about David. David and a young man by the name of Nabal. David was, before he becomes king, is, has an army, and he's running from David. And you find him in a very precarious place. Because, you see, David makes a request of Nabal. Nabal's a very rich man. And Nabal, by the very definition of his name, fool, is a very haunty, a very powerful, a very uh, cruel, abrasive man to the point that David takes care of his sheep and protects his shepherds as they're in danger and as his army grows out around him. And so it becomes time to shear the sheep, and David sends his messengers, ten men, to see Nabal and to ask him to give him some of the prophets and some of the meat and some of the uh, wool that was being sheared. And as he does such, 
Notice that Nabal, Nabal responds in a very peculiar way. If you read there in 1 Samuel, the 25th chapter, he says, When David's men arrived, they gave Nabal this message in David's name. Then they waited. Nabal answered David's ser- uh, servants, Who is this David? Who is this son of Jesse? Many servants are breaking away from their masters these days. Why should I take my bread and water and the meat that I have slaughtered for my shears and give it to this man coming from who knows where? David's men turned around and went back, and when they arrived, they reported every word to David. And David said to his men, Put on your swords. So they put on their swords, and, they put, and David put on his. About 400 men went up with David, with 200 men staying with the supplies. Nabal responds negatively, as you can tell. And when the report comes back to David, he gets angry. He gets so upset that he straps on his sword. He gets his men together, and they begin to march to, uh, to, uh, to Nabal and to defeat him and to kill him and to take what they thought was rightfully theirs in the first place. Boy, that response was something, wasn't it? Because you see, as he takes his 400 men... Nabal happens to be married to a young lady by the name of Abigail. And Abigail is not like her husband. She is defined and described as being beautiful and being very, very wise. And as she uh, understands David's army is about to come and to destroy not only Nabal and his workers, but maybe the entire family, she prepares some food. And she prepares a meal, and she takes that all out to David. And as you read that passage of Scripture, you'll find that she humbles herself. She kneels before David, and she pleads. She pleads for the life of her family. She pleads for the life of her husband. She pleads that, you know, Nabal was a man that is so rough and so uh, abrasive that you could only expect him to act this way. And David, you should not be the same type of man. And she pleads unto him. Fourteen times in that passage of Scripture, she calls him Lord. She seeks him out. She, she uh, petitions him. And David finally gives way. He gives way, and he repents of that. He overcomes his anger. And the day is saved. The armies no longer go to war. And they, are fi- they find themselves ready uh, to move on. And there is a twist to the story. Because as you read 1 Samuel, the 25th chapter, you'll find out what happens to Abigail later on in the story. But what does that say to us? You know, I read Scripture, and as I read Scripture, I see David gets angry. I read Scripture in the Old Testament that talks about the anger of God, the anger that is manifested there. And it becomes confusing to me as a Christian to understand, how do I respond in a constructive way to my anger? I realize that the Bible talks about be angry and sin not. How are you going to be angry and sin not? How is it that this emotion that swells up within you, that seems to take a hold of you, that forces you, or at least you seem forced to speak out, to scream out, to holler, to break things. Now, I know nobody in here does that, okay? So I'm speaking to somebody down here at one of these other churches because I know it's not here. But I lived in that house in which someone would take dishes and just hurl them across the room. I swore up and down that if I ever got into a fight, the one thing I would not do 
is destroy something I had to replace. Okay, if I've got to buy the dishes all over again, there's no reason for me to break them, okay? And so I responded with my anger not in throwing things and destroying things, but I can scream with the best of them, okay? I can holler with the best of them. And that anger becomes overpowering. And as I read Scripture, he says, how do, I, you know, how, do you sin, how do you get angry and sin not? He says, first of all, Proverbs the 90, uh, Psalms the 97, chapter verse 10 says that we focus our anger on the violation, upon the sin. Notice what he says there. He says, hate evil. Hate evil, you who love the Lord. You know, one of the things we find ourselves, we're afraid to stand up against evil. We're afraid to stand up against those that drive while intoxicated. Mothers have gotten together because they, they've been upset and they're concerned about losing their children. But, you know, the church ought to be standing up. You know, when you stand in front of the casket time after time and have to look into the face of moms and dads and brothers and sisters who've lost a loved one, because of the abuse of alcohol, because of being behind the wheel, or even being the victims of someone who was such. We ought to be standing up as a church against domestic violence. We ought to be standing up as a church against child abuse. We ought to be standing up against sin all around us. James was telling me one time about Brother Ron. He said they were getting ready to put hooters in up on the hill. And Brother Ron went to the council and spoke against it. You know, we need to stand. And the problem is that we're afraid that we're going to be identified as being political. We're afraid that somebody's going to criticize us. We're afraid that somebody's going to think we're do-gooders. Well, we are do-gooders. We believe the Word of God, and we believe that sin is sin, and right is right, and obeying God is the purpose of every born-again believer. We believe that sin destroys lives. We believe that sin destroys societies. We believe that sin destroys governments. And we need to stand up and declare the righteousness of God. Declare that which is right. But he says also that anger not only focuses upon the violation, the sin, but it seeks to ratify it. It seeks to make right that which is wrong. It seeks to go out and, and do that which is just. When you read Matthew, the 21st chapter, verse 12, you read that passage of Scripture in which Jesus was in the temple and as he was beating and as he was driving out the money changers. We were talking this morning about online giving. Well, we thought we, well, let's just put one of those ATMs or put one of those ATMs where you can go get the money and get it out, and, you know, and you can transfer money and all that other stuff. It's just hard for me to go that way, okay, to put it in the church. That's just hard to do, that we're going to have that kind of setup. But it is not hard for me to understand how many times we try to go out and do things for the convenience of people. And in the book of Matthew here, when Jesus is running out the money changers, they were trying to be convenient for the people. The people who came from all around the world, and they were bringing their coins, and they were bringing their monies, and they were exchanging that money so it would be convenient for them to put their money in the offering plate. 
course, they took a little money off the side, right? There has to be some user fee. has to be some interest here. And Jesus come in there, and he saw what they were doing, and he drives them out, and he is, in, he is angry, he is upset, he is distraught that they had make, made their house a place for Satan and for the things of the world. And so when we look at our anger, our anger ought to be not only focused against the, uh, uh, the sin, it ought to be to rectify a wrong, and it ought to be to imitate God. You know, Jesus tells us time and time again to live, to imitate the Father. And we ought to be against sin at every turn. And so when I look at, be, you know, to be angry and sin not, I believe he's speaking to me in the realm in which I am standing for justice, that I'm standing for righteousness, that I'm standing for holiness, that I'm standing for godliness, that I'm standing for the right. But he also talks about sin can become, that anger can become sinful. And it becomes sinful when it keeps us from obeying God. If you look at Numbers, the 20th chapter, verse 8, you find the account of Moses, who is leading the nation of Israel through the wilderness. And as you read that book of Numbers, even those first few eight uh, chapters, you read about time and time again the nation of Israel doing something. What do you think they were doing? Any guesses? They complaining every time they had an opportunity. The bread wasn't right. The water wasn't there. You know, it was too hot. It was too cold. Almost like Sunday morning. You know, too hot here, too cold there. And ladies and gentlemen, I'm not a thermostat guy, okay? I am not a thermostat guy. Because if I said, Jackie's always getting me. Jackie has me by the numbers. Because when I go in the house, she goes, it's too hot in here. I'm going, okay. So I turn the air conditioner on, and I'm sitting there with an afghan on, okay? Trying to stay warm. But you know, the nation of Israel was out in the desert. And life really wasn't going the way they thought it ought to go. Life was pretty tough for them. Their food was scarce. It was hot. It was dusty. It was dirty. And they wanted just something to be convenient. And it wasn't. And they complained to Moses time and time again. And when you get to the uh, 20th chapter, verse 8, they're complaining about water. And God tells Moses, I want you to go down and speak to the rock. And when you speak to the rock, water will come forth. And they're complaining, and they're complaining, and Moses is getting madder and madder by the minute. He goes down to the creek. He finds that rock, and does he speak to the rock? No. He takes his rod, and he hits the rock twice, and water comes out, and the people are satisfied. But what happens to Moses? God says, both you and Aaron are not going into the promised land because you've disobeyed me told you to speak to the rock, and you felt compelled to hit the rock. You see, anger becomes sinful when it keeps us from obeying God. Anger becomes sinful when it calls upon us to seek revenge, when we want to satisfy our own problems and our own pain, when it becomes harmful in our life. You know, anger is that part of our emotional being that causes str great stress. It causes high blood pressure. It causes us to be sick. It causes us to stay home from work. It causes us to be totally distracted from life itself. That anger can possess us. 
and we want to get back and to extract from somebody the same pain that they've imposed upon us. But notice also sinful anger provides the devil a foothold. And there in Ephesians, the fourth chapter, verse 27 and 28, he says, Do not let the sun go down when you are still angry, and do not give the devil a foothold. How many times have we gone to bed angry? A lot of times, right? We've taken that anger and we've stored it away. And all night long we were doing what? We were scheming. We were planning. We were mulling over. We were taking that offense. We were taking that hurt. We were taking that pain and dissecting it and driving it and making it and embellishing upon it, making it very, very painful in our life. But God's Word says we're not supposed to go to bed with that anger. Because what it does is give the devil a foothold into our spiritual lives. What it does is give Satan an opportunity to steal from us the joy of our salvation. He gives, uh, it gives the devil an opportunity to take away the victory that we could have in our lives. Well, how are we going to overcome our anger? There's six points here. Six points on how to overcome our anger. And there in Proverbs the 29th chapter, verse 11, he says that we ought to be able to choose to restrain and control our emotions. Verse 29, 11, he says, A fool gives full vent to his anger, but a wise man keeps himself under control. Man, have you ever boiled up so much and it just overcomes you that you just don't know what you do and you just vent it, you just let it out, and it manifests itself in words that you know you shouldn't speak. It manifests itself in threats that you know you shouldn't make. It manifests itself in hate. It manifests itself in lies. It manifests itself in such a way that we lose total control. He says that we ought to control ourselves. I've learned so much about anger that I know that when I get angry, one of the things I do I sit down. I sit down because I know if I sit down, I'm telling myself something. Because if I get up, I have a tendency to get in your face. Okay. If I stand up, I have a tendency to raise my voice. If I get up, I'm in trouble. Okay. And so I've learned, sit down. Shut up. Just sit back and try to figure out what's going on here. And worst case, what do I do? I get out of the house. Okay, I get out of the house. I go walk. But I have to learn how to restrain and control my emotion because it can overcome me. It can take advantage of me. Notice Philippians 4, chapter verse 6. He says that we ought to choose to surrender to the Holy Spirit. Choose to surrender to the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit in our life is directing us. Do not be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, present yourself. And present your request to the Lord. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. You know, when that anger is coming into my life, when I feel that emotion raging, the Holy Spirit's always sitting there going, you shouldn't be doing this. You don't need to be saying this. You don't need to be feeling this. And the Holy Spirit's coming at me, and he's convicting me, and he's directing me. He's pushing me. He is pleading with me, and I have to surrender to the Holy Spirit. You see, that's a choice on my part. 
I can choose that emotion. I can choose to stay angry. I can choose to hold on to it. I can choose to, to boil in it. I can choose to, to simmer all day in it. But God wants me to choose to surrender to him, to allow the peace of God to come into my life, to allow his spirit to overflow all aspects of my life. We also need to choose to deal with the small issues. In the scripture, he talks about anger as a flickering flame. You know, that flame has a way of growing, doesn't it? It's amazing how one little piece or one little emotion can mushroom. It's amazing how anger can take nations to invade other nations. It's amazing how anger has a way of growing that people begin to demonize entire uh, groups of people. Anger has a way of growing if we don't ignite, or if we don't ext- uh, uh, put out and eliminate that fire in our being. But notice the other three things that he says. That he says that to overcome our anger, we need to choose and to control our words. Proverbs, the 15th chapter, verse 1. A gentle, ang- a gentle answer turns away wrath, but a haste, harsh word stirs up anger. Well, our words are powerful, are they not? They're powerful because we know which buttons to push, don't we? We know that if we'll say this, that it has this response. We know that if we deal with that emotion in somebody else's life, that we've got them right where we want them because we know every single time we mention it, it brings about that anger in their being. And so he says we need to control our words. We need to measure our words. We need to weigh them. We need to put them in perspective. We need to understand that we use words as weapons and we hurl them at the heart and at the spirit and at the very person that we say we love the most. It's amazing how words reach out. You know, we're in that political year and that political time, right? And it doesn't make any difference what words you use. Somebody's sitting down and has it recorded somewhere and is defining that and wanting to know not only what the word means, but what are the implications of it and how are you using it and why, had, why did you use it at that particular time? He says that we need to control our words. We need to harness them. We need to put a uh, put a uh, harness on them and to control them and to steer them and to make it part of our lives. You know, in my life, I have found that if somebody would come and ask me a question, I felt compelled to answer it. Okay, <laughs> it wasn't only until recently that I figured out I don't have to answer everybody's questions. You know, I really, you know, sometimes I can just say, not right now. Talk to me later. But normally I'm not that way. If you come and ask me a question, I'm going to give you an answer. And many times if I haven't had time to think it out and work it out, it can become harsh and it can be hard and it can be uh, wrapped in such a way that people take offense. But God's word says I need to guard that. I need to protect that. Notice that he says in Romans the 8th chapter verse 6, that we ought to choose and to control our thoughts. He says, The mind of a sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. 
They, those controlled by the sinful nature cannot please God. Notice in, in uh, 1 Samuel, the 25th chapter, verse 21, notice how David speaks to himself. Notice what he says. Now, David had said, Surely in vain I have guarded all that man has in the wilderness. This is David, I believe, talking to himself, okay? His men have went and asked Nabal to give him some food and give him some of the bounty of his, his uh, prophet, and he has completely blown him off. And here's David listening to that report, and notice what I think David's saying to himself. He says, now David says, Surely in vain I have guarded all this man has in the wilderness, so that nothing was missing of all that belonged to him. And he has returned me evil for good. May God do so to the enemies of David, and more also if by morning I leave as much as one male of any who belonged to him. David's sitting there going, hey, I did what was right. I protected Nabal's hide. I protected his, his flock. I protected his men. And nothing got into them. Nothing destroyed them. I did everything I possibly could do. And let me tell you something. If that's the way he feels, if that's the way he wants to be, I'm not going to let one of them live. I'm going to kill them all. We need to control our thoughts. Because if you think that way for very long, guess what happens? You begin to believe that kind of stuff. You begin to believe it and you begin to act upon it. Notice that he says that in Proverbs, the 20, 20th chapter, verse 3, he says that we ought to control our actions. It is to a man's honor to avoid strife, but every fool is quick to quarrel. You ever seen those kind of people? That, man, you don't have to say much to them. They're already in the defensive mode. They're already ready to jump into it. They're just waiting for somebody to come in and knock on their door. They're excited about getting into this quarrel. They fight over virtually everything. It's amazing how anger can possess us. And I believe with all my heart that God wants us to have victory over anger. He wants us to live victorious. He wants us to have the peace of God reigning in us. But I also believe he wants us to understand that sin is of such we need to stand up against it. We need to declare wrong, wrong. We need to declare that which is ungodly to be ungodly. One of the things that I did uh, last week is that I went to see my dad who's in a nursing home. And my dad's been a Christian a long, long time. And he really, he, if a TV show's on and four-letter words come on or questionable words come on, my dad won't say a word. He'll get up and he'll leave. And we'll go, Dad, come on, stop being so old-fashioned. This is just, you know, this is just life. This is just the way people talk. And he goes, but I don't have to listen. And so now he's in a nursing home, and in the morning they roll him out to the common area and set him there, and they begin to just talk, and they talk, and they talk. And the language gets bluer and bluer, and my dad just gets more upset all the time, to the point that now he just sits in his room, because he doesn't want to hear that kind of language. You know, anger has a way that we need to be opposed to that which we accept every day as just life. It, it is, but it isn't, and it shouldn't be. 
I shouldn't have to sit and expose myself to the language of people who take the name of God in vain. He's my God. He saved me. He forgave me. And I ought to stand up. You know, one of the things as a chaplain, you'd walk around a motor pool, you'd go out into the mess hall, you'd go somewhere, and all of a sudden they saw the chaplain coming, and they go, you know, sorry, chaplain, didn't mean to say that. Sorry, chaplain. Didn't mean you might as well go ahead and say it. You go say it one way or the other, right? And you thought it in your heart, so just go to it. I says, God will forgive you too. But you know, we do that, and we fail to realize that anger eats away at us. I think anger also takes away our testimony. You know, it takes away the smile off our face. It takes the joy out of our step. It destroys us physically. Now, I know none of this was for you today. A lot of it's just for me, I know. But I believe it's a problem in our lives. I believe it's a problem that we need to be challenged with. And David met that challenge. David repented of that anger. David made it right. And the challenge for you this morning and the challenge for me is, I need to make that right. I need to learn and have the peace of God reigning in my being. I need to keep the testimony of God. And I need to know there are times I need to stand. I need to say that strong. I need to be distinct and, and directive in that. But I need to be able to say it in love. You know, we say something about sin nowadays. People get upset, don't they? You know? What's God's plan for marriage? <gasps> We better not say anything about that, right? Because if we say something about it, then it's going to have political implications, and then we're going to be, you know, opposed. We're going to be intolerant. We're not going to stand for what the Word of God says. We're just going to let people live. God says what He says, you know, and as I read God's Word, there's things that I can't find a way around, ladies and gentlemen. I really can't find a way around it. I've looked, I've tried, I've climbed it, I've searched it. But when God says what is sin is sin, it is sin. And it makes no difference what a political being may say about it. It makes no difference what a Congress may vote about it. It makes no difference what a state house may say about it. It makes no difference what a mother or a dad think about it. It is what God's Word says, and sin still remains to be sin. And we need to stand. We need to stand for righteousness and for holiness and for the word of God. Shall we pray? Father God, we come now. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your message. But Father, we pray that as we examine our lives, as we allow the Holy Spirit to move amongst us even now, that you reveal unto us that sin, that sin that anger has possessed us and pushed us and compelled us and controlled us to the point that we've lost our testimony, to the point that we've been used by Satan, to the point that we've said things and we've thought things that are not right before you. Father, give us that holy boldness to stand for your word and for your message. Give us that holy boldness to stand and declare sin to be sin and right to be right before you. Use us during this time of invitation, for we ask it in Christ's name. Amen.
before we stand and sing the message, to, uh, the challenge this morning. The challenge is this. You know, we as Baptists historically have walked the aisle. We historically at Meadowbrook, that probably is not necessarily all that we do. But you know, I believe that the altar is a place that we build for people to come and pray. It's a place that we come and we confess our sins to God. We believe in the priesthood of the believer. We believe that Christians can go right straight to the throne of God. So you don't have to come and take my hand. You don't have to come and find a priest. You can come right before God and you can meet him and he can forgive. And so our invitations are designed for men and women who are Christians to come and make those decisions before him. And to not be afraid that somebody's going to say something about them when they come. That somebody's going to snicker and go, oh, I wonder why they're going. I wonder what's going on in their life. We ought to come and join you. It's also an invitation time in which we believe that if you're not a, a Christian, if you haven't been saved, if you haven't asked Jesus Christ to come into your life, now's the time to do it. Before you ever leave this building, before you ever darken the parking lot, but to come here and find Jesus as personal Lord and Savior. If you're looking for a church home, if God's leading you, if God's directing you, if he's tugging on your heart, or if he's showed you this is the place that you ought to serve, then you need to come this morning. This invitation is not just a time that we sing one verse, I turn around to David and go, okay, that's it. It's a time in which we inspect, we allow the Spirit of God to move in us and examine us. So it's a prayerful time. It's a solemn time. But it's an opportunity for you and I to make the decisions that we need to make in our lives. And I invite you to do that this morning as we stand together and sing hymn number 277.